from the door woke us up with a start. I had to shield my eyes from the sheer brilliance of the morning sun. And then all of a sudden I remembered, I remembered this was Tuesday morning. This was our first full day in the city of Jerusalem. And it was Passover week as well. And so the city was full of pilgrims from all over Palestine and the surrounding areas. The literature that had been given to us described Jerusalem as a turbulent city fueled by the messianic expectations of a turbulent people that were constantly in resistance against Rome, who were their oppressors. Sometimes this even expressed itself in in, in violent uprising against Rome. Rome, of course, being a ruthless machine that it was, put these uprisings down very quickly, often bloodily, but they didn't stop. Anything might happen during Passover week when religious and political fervor ran so much higher. In fact, just yesterday we had heard that a young rabbi who had been gathering a lot of support for himself had done some blasphemous things in the temple. He had apparently interrupted the buying and the selling of the animals in the marketplace and had driven out the money changers from there. Well, this temple was on our agenda for this morning for our visit. Now, of course, being Gentiles, we could only go to the outer courts. We couldn't go any further than that. But apparently the outer courts were the very place where this rabbi called Jesus had done all these things. He had not yet received any word from the authorities, so maybe today would be the day. Well, perhaps it was a bit dangerous to go to the temple. But I certainly wasn't going to miss this opportunity to to see this rabbi in action himself. And so I was with excitement looking forward to that trip. Besides, we had, the, we had a wonderful tour guide with us. He was a young man, but he seemed to know a lot. His name was John Mark. And he would often take us aside and explain to us the religious and the political significance of some of the events that would unfold before our eyes. And that would help us understand a lot more of what was happening. And so very quickly, a group of us gathered outside the humble little inn in which we spent the night. And we were off on a brisk morning walk to the city of Jerusalem. And as we made our way into the outer courts of the temple, we didn't have long to wait before we saw this Rabbi Jesus with his group of disciples around him. And while we were wondering whether to go near or not, all of a sudden from across the temple courts there came a a very official looking delegation. Impressive men in long beards and big long robes with big borders all around them. And Mark explained to us that these were made up of three groups of people. There were the people known as the chief priests and there were the teachers of the law and there were the elders of the community. And these three groups made up what was called the Sanhedrin which was the highest ruling body in Jerusalem that governed the social life and the religious life of the people. So evidently they were about to respond to Jesus' actions. And their opening question told us that was exactly what it was all about. They came right up to him and said, tell us by what authority you did these things and who gave you that authority anyway? Mark explained to us that in those days, authority was what it was all about. That if you had the right kind of authority, anything you said and anything you did automatically was okay. How would Jesus answer this question? Now, interestingly, he didn't answer it at all. He, in fact, decided to ask them a question of his own. And he said to them, I'm going to ask you a question. If you answer it, I'll give you the answer to my question. And so he said to them, John the Baptist, was his baptism from heaven or not? Well, we could see by the reaction of these people that he had said something very enigmatic. 
because this very confident looking group of people suddenly went into a little huddle and began talking amongst themselves. So we of course turned to Mark and said, Mark, what's going on? What did Jesus say that made them change like this? Well, Mark explained to us that this, he had kind of put them in a bit of a quandary because if they said John's baptism was from heaven, then of course that was setting themselves up for the next question because Jesus would then say to them, well then why didn't you believe what John the Baptist said about me? Which of, of course referring to the fact that he was the Messiah, which would immediately settle the question of authority in his actions in the temple. Well, they couldn't well say that. But on the other hand, Mark said, they couldn't easily say that this baptism of John was not from heaven because the people regarded him as a great prophet. Not only that, he had just recently been martyred. And so they were afraid. They were afraid of what the people would do. And if they had a, politic, a group uprising, that would not look very well with Rome. And so they kind of come almost inaudibly saying to Jesus, well, we can't tell you. Well, Jesus said, in that case, I can't tell you either. And you could tell by the, by the look on the people's faces, they were absolutely delighted to see this uh, group of people eat humble pie for a change. And they marveled, they marveled at this man called Jesus. Here was a group of people, their religious elite, <laughs> that was trying to discredit Jesus. And with one single question, he had completely discredited their authority. Well, we were kind of mulling this over for a little while, and along came another group of people. And Mark explained to us that this was a kind of a strange mixture of two people that didn't normally hang out together. One group of them were called the Herodians. And as their name suggested, these were people who were very loyal to King Herod, who was a puppet Jewish king that Rome used to kind of rule Jerusalem at that time. The other group were the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees didn't like Herod. In fact, they hated Herod. Because as their own, one of their own countrymen, he was considered to be a traitor. Doing Rome's business. Not only that, he had committed adultery. He had married his brother's wife while his brother was still alive. And so the Pharisees hated him for both these reasons. So how come the Herodians and the Pharisees were together now? Well, because they had one common interest. See, the religious authorities had failed somehow in their confrontation with Jesus. And Jesus had shown them up with a simple question. So they decided maybe they'll take a political angle. If they could somehow trap Jesus into saying things that were politically not going to sit well with Rome, well, they could get Rome to do all their dirty work. And so they come up to Jesus. But unlike the chief priests and the first delegation that just came outright with a question, this group kind of began with what looked like flattery. And they said, oh, Jesus, Master, we know that you don't really uh, care about what people think. And we know that you always teach the truth and that you are a man of integrity. Well, Mark kind of explained to us that this wasn't really flattery at all. This was really their way of saying, you better answer this question because your reputation is on the line. Because they, th they thought they were going to trap him. And so they said to him, hey, Jesus, is it okay to give, uh, what do you think? Should we be paying taxes to Caesar or, or not? Now, taxes in first century Palestine was a totally emotion-laden issue. People like the Herodians played taxes happily. People like the Pharisees hated paying taxes, but they paid them anyway. And then there were the zealots, the revolutionary group, some of whom were the ones that espoused all the violent reaction against Rome that outright refused to pay taxes altogether. So that was their way of trying to trap Jesus, put him on the horns of a political dilemma. If he said, yes, it's okay to pay taxes to Rome, then of course, that would maybe go a long way towards discrediting Jesus in the eyes of the people, because he would seem to be taking Rome's side. He might even stir up the wrath of the revolutionary group. They could do the work of eliminating Jesus. On the other hand, if he said no, 
then that would seem like being uh, uh, actually fomenting and even condoning revolution against Rome, in which case the Herodians could report him to Rome and Rome could take over. So now Jesus was on the horns of another dilemma. How was he going to handle this? Well, first of all, his opening words showed us that he knew exactly what these guys were up to because he said, look, you're hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? So he seemed to know right away what they were up to. And then he said, I have a question to ask you. Well, we kind of, we've already seen this happen once. We wondered what kind of a question he was going to ask this time. And he said to them, bring me a coin. And he said, whose, whose inscription is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what God. Well, that didn't seem to us to be a very particularly brilliant observation. But again, looking at the effect that it had on these Pharisees and these groups, he must, Jesus must have said something that totally threw them into consternation. Not only were they rendered speechless, we could actually tell by their faces that they couldn't help actually being amazed. There was even a, 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 a look of amazement, almost like a reluctant uh, admiration of an enemy's strategic move. That kind of a look was on their faces. Well, of course, we, not knowing anything, uh, turned to Mark again and said, Mark, what's going on? What is, what, what is this statement all about? Well, Mark explained to us, he reminded us again that in first century Palestine, temple, taxes, revolution, and Messiah all went together. They were all part of one big equation. He reminded us that recently there was a pretender Messiah called Judas the Galilean, who had also uh, talked about not paying taxes. It was actually rooted in something that happened much earlier on in their history, a very important event in Israel's history almost 200 years ago. When, when a Roman ruler at that time had committed the ultimate insult and had offered a pig for sacrifice in the temple court. And two brothers, the Maccabean brothers, had led an amazing revolt where they had actually won a victory, an armed victory, cleansed the temple and reinstituted proper worship and began a whole new dynasty of kingship from whom the chief priests uh, derived their existence. Well, apparently these two brothers, when their father, whose name was Mattathias, just before the father was dying, he brought these two sons to himself and he said to the two brothers, his, almost his last, word, last words were, pay the Gentiles what you owe them and pay God what you owe him. Sounded very much like Jesus' words. Only what he meant by paying to the Gentiles was fight them. What you owe the Gentiles is armed revolution and that is your expression of your zeal for Torah. So Jesus here was using words that was well known in their history as revolutionary words, as fighting words. Because he said exactly the same thing. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. But with a twist. Whereas in Mattathias' mouth it meant paying the Gentiles meant fight. Jesus said pay them the taxes, which meant don't fight. He's calling them, as we learned two weeks ago, to a whole new kind of revolution. He was using revolutionary language that fueled their violence in the past to teach them the exact opposite. He says, that's what zeal for God really means. Pay these people the taxes, don't have anything to do with armed revolution, and follow me in this whole new kind of revolution that I've been preaching and teaching. Well, you can see now why they were stymied. <laughs> they couldn't very well report him to Rome because he just finished telling them, pay taxes. And they couldn't exactly discredit them in the eyes of the people either because he was just as insistent that they worship God and serve him. So here was a second group of people that came with a lot of authority, hoping to trap Jesus. And instead, a few simple words from Jesus had trapped them and reduced them to uh, not only speechlessness, but actually reluctant admiration as well. And off they went. The religious ploy had failed and the political ploy had failed. 
Well, we weren't finished yet because there was a third group of people that was coming up to Jesus. And Mark explained to us that these guys were known as the Sadducees. And they were, if you want, the anti-supernaturalists of that day. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They also believed only in the first five books of Moses. And so the Sadducees came up with a different kind of question to Jesus. They said, Jesus, uh, what would you say if a man uh, got married and he died without having any children? But they were actually referring to an Old Testament uh, prescription by Moses that if that happened, the ma- it was a duty of the man's brother to marry the widow and, and the first child that would be born of that union would actually belong to the dead brother to carry on his name. And so the, fa- the Sadducees used this uh, custom that was known as the Leveret marriage and it constructed a, a hypothetical, I mean theoretically possible but a practically bizarre situation. They said, imagine if the second man also died without having children. And then imagine that these were seven brothers and it happened seven times over. And all seven of them died and the woman died childless. Whose wife would she be in the resurrection? Now their purpose in asking this question wasn't because they were interested in learning anything. It was their way of showing, see how ridiculous your doctrine of resurrection really is. So now what was Jesus going to do with this one? Well, this time Jesus didn't bother with a question like he did in the first two cases. He came right out and he said, you guys are badly mistaken. And I thought what he was going to say to them was, you guys are badly mistaken because you're using all these theoretically possible but practically irrelevant situations. He didn't say that though. You know what he said to them? He said, you guys are badly mistaken because you don't know the power of God and you don't know the Holy Scriptures. What was that? What does that mean? Well, it's time to turn to Mark again. Mark says, okay, here he's actually, let me tell you what he's saying. When he says to them, you don't know the power of God, What Jesus was saying to them was, your thinking is so earthbound. You think that that when we talk about the resurrection, it is just a, a continuation of life just like we've known here on earth. But the resurrected life is not just a mere reawakening from deadness. The resurrected life is an awakening to a whole new kind of life where we are completely transformed people. And Jesus went on to say, we would be like the angels. Not at all meaning that the distinction between humans and angels would disappear, but rather that, that, that like the focus of the angels in heaven is God. So our focus in heaven as a resurrected people will be primarily on God, and horizontal relationships will not know any of the exclusivity of earth, like in a marriage relationship, but will be a community of worshippers. So he says you're badly mistaken in this, that you have totally misunderstood the real nature of the resurrection life. And then he said, so you don't know the power of God. He said, you also don't know the scriptures. They use an example from Moses. So Jesus goes back to another incident in the life of Moses. He said, remember when God came to Moses in the burning bush? What did he say to them? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Jesus said, this shows that he's the God of the living and not the dead. So Mark explained to us how this showed that he was the God of the living and not the dead. Some people might think Jesus was just giving a little lesson in grammar when he said, I am the God of Abraham, not I was the God of Abraham and Isaac. But that wasn't what it was all about. (laughs) What these guys had completely missed was the fact that when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, that was a way of explaining to the fact that this God was a God who made and kept covenants. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob was a theological term that talked about God who made covenants with people. 
And the point of Jesus' words were that when God makes a covenant with His people, whereby He sovereignly initiates a relationship with a redeemed people, He's not going to let death end that relationship. Therefore, in the very nature of a God who makes and keeps covenants and institutes intimacy with the people, resurrection is an inherent part of that so that that relationship will continue in eternity. It was precisely this kind of misunderstanding of the scriptures and of the power of God that had led the Sadducees into their horrible anti-supernaturalism and and all these kinds of uh, theoretical questions by which they tried to disprove the resurrection. What a morning it had been. (laughs) Three groups of people. A political question, a theological question, a philosophical question. All intent to trap Jesus in one way or another. And yet, with questions of his own and insightful comments on his own, he had ended up showing the true condition of the questioner's heart. Well, as the rest of the tour group went on to another trip in the afternoon, I had to go back to my home. I had to go back to the inn because I did not want to miss anything that had happened to me that morning. And so I sat down and took the afternoon and I wrote in my journal. I have a question for you. 21 centuries later, after you eavesdrop on those three conversations, what would you write in your journal? What would strike you? Here's what struck me. I was struck again by Jesus' words. You are badly mistaken because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. You see, these people knew the scriptures. The chief priests and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the, and the elders and the teachers of the law. They knew the scriptures. They knew the facts of scriptures. But they knew nothing of the power of the word of God to touch and transform life. And it occurred to me that that's what was really happening in the temple that morning in these three encounters. Jesus, the living word of God, in interaction with human beings, was revealing to them the condition of their own heart. Take the chief priest, for example. What motivated their question on authority? It was envy. And it was envy that flows out of offended pride. You see, they had status. According to God's own prescription of the worship system, they were highest on the pecking order. There were, of course, those poor Gentiles who could only come to the outer courts. Then there was the court of the Jewish women. Then there was the courts of the men. And then a little bit further along was the holy place where Levites and priests did their thing. And then, of course, the chief priests could actually go into the Holy of Holies once a year. They were high up on the pecking order when it came to access to a holy God. Not only that, because the chief priests were the men who ran the temple. And the temple, as I've already told you, had strong political overtones in that situation. Those who ruled the temple were men of great prestige. So the chief priests were men of tremendous prestige, both politically and in the high pecking order. And yet, you know, it's kind of struck me that these were the people who were afraid of the common people. (laughs) They couldn't give an honest answer to Jesus' question because they were afraid of the people. And you know what, my brothers and sisters? Authority that is rooted in position and not in character is always afraid of the people. It is no real authority at all. Whereas authority that is rooted in character, independent of position, which is not controlled by the fear of people, is real authority. And so Jesus exposed that shallowness within their hearts. And as for the Pharisees, he exposed their hypocrisy. They were hypocrites in this sense more than anything else. Here they were trying to trap Jesus 
into making some revolutionary statements against Rome so they could betray him as a traitor to Rome, whereas they were the ones who were secretly very much on the side of those who were uh, espousing armed revolution and political ambitions. And as for the Sadducees, he just exposed their unbelief in the supernatural and their shallow understanding of scripture which was masking itself as a theological question. It struck me, you know, that all of Scripture really has that purpose. That all of Scripture is a record of how God deals with human beings. And as human beings respond to God, it reveals the condition of their heart. It reveals in human hearts today the same kind of emotions of envy, sometimes rooted in offended pride of hypocrisy and of unbelief and doubt and pessimism and a whole host of other things that are in our hearts. But of course the purpose for that, the purpose why God uses his word to reveal that to us is so that unlike these people who refuse that revelation, who maintain their hostility against Jesus, that we might do the exact opposite. That we might fall humbly at his feet. And we might acknowledge what he has revealed about our hearts. And then we can go one step further and ask him to transform us. We can ask him to give us his authority that is rooted in character. For the kind of authority that we grasp for, that is rooted often in pride. We can ask him to replace our hypocrisy with his integrity. And we can ask him to replace our unbelief with, with the kind of grasp of scripture that produces faith and trust and hope within us. And then wonder of wonders, we can rise from that kind of an interaction and become part of the followers of Jesus that can boldly proclaim that kingdom. You know, even that happened. Some, a passage, if you read the scripture that I encourage you to read in this past week, you would have noticed a rather obscure and sometimes puzzling section of scripture that talks about a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples on the way to Jerusalem before these events happened. Just read that with me. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also, I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, if you take these statements out of context, you can come up with some fairly ridiculous uh, applications. But for example, Jesus said to them, you will do what I did to the fig tree. So what do you think he was telling his disciples? You will go around zapping uh, horticultural things all over the place and shriveling them up? Obviously, that's ridiculous. And as for the mountain, what do you think he was telling them to do? They'll, they'll make pieces of real estate, jump up from where they are and drop into the Sea of Galilee every now and then? Those mini-miracles and maxi-miracles are ridiculous. They don't make any sense at all. 
But he didn't say that. He said, what I did to the fig tree, you will do. What do you think he meant by that? And then all of a sudden, why teaching on prayer and forgiveness? What does that have to do with what's going on? You see, these four, these four statements about the fig tree, about the mountain, about forgiveness and about prayer seem to come out of nowhere. If you look at the previous day's events and if you look at what's going to happen just now in the temple, both of which we've seen, one last week, one this week. So we need to take another look in terms of what happened on Tuesday and what happened on Monday and all of a sudden you'll see these four things all relate to the same kind of things that we'll be talking about. For example, we learned last week that the, what he did to the fig tree was an acted out parable of what he was going to do in the temple, which as we learned was not a cleansing of the temple but a prophetic denunciation of its coming destruction. In that context, he says, if you have, if you, he pointed to this mountain. What mountain? He's not talking about any mountain. He's pointing to a particular mountain. And there's only one mountain there, folks, at that time. That's Mount Zion. And the temple was on Mount Zion. He was pointing to that particular temple on Mount Zion. And he says, if you say, don't be impressed, he said, because later on you will read in Mark's Gospel, the people saw all this magnificent structure. And Jesus said, not one stone is going to be left unturned. I think the only interpretation that makes sense in the context is he was saying, what I have just finished doing, which is pronouncing prophetic destruction upon this temple. If you have faith, believe me, don't be taken away. Don't be impressed by this massive fortress, which they celebrated in Psalms like Psalm 46 and Psalm 48. Beautiful for situation in Mount Zion, the joy of the whole earth, impregnable fortress that it is. Jesus says that's visible reality. This whole stuff is coming down in a heap. Mount things being cast into the sea was a metaphorical expression throughout the Psalms for destruction. And so what Jesus was doing, I think, was calling them to faith, to believe that what he had just finished doing was going to happen. He said, pray for that. And now, the, by the way, the statement on forgiveness makes a lot of sense in this context because rather than armed revolution against Rome, he was teaching them to forgive the enemy. The very ones who are going to destroy this temple. I think that makes a lot more sense. But the point in all of this was he was conferring authority upon his own disciples. He was saying these things you are going to do. And you know that's exactly what happened after Jesus died and after Jesus rose again. That's exactly what the disciples did. They went to the same outer courts of the temple. And in the same outer courts of the temple without taking particip participating in the sacrificial system because I was all finished. We saw that last week. They continued to proclaim the new Messiah. They continued to proclaim the new revolution. They continued to proclaim this message of love. And they did it in prayer. The whole book of Acts is full of prayer. And you see, their lives were marked with the same, a different kind of authority. Their lives were marked with the authority of Jesus as they stood up against the chief priests and the Pharisees. Their lives were marked with integrity. And their lives were marked with a grasp of the scriptures. As they preached Old Testament, fulfilled now in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I said, that's why I said when we encounter Jesus in this way, when we allow Jesus, the living word of God, to reveal the condition of our hearts, when we are willing then to submit to him, when we are willing to acknowledge our envy, our pride, our hypocrisy, and our doubts and unbeliefs, and we ask him to exchange his authority for ours, his integrity for our hypocrisy, and his grasp of scripture and his faith for our unbelief, then we can rise from those encounters and we can do the fig tree miracle. We can then proclaim that whole new good news. We can call people to a whole new revolution of love and of forgiveness and of mercy. And by the way, one more thing. When we take scripture seriously like that, 
and when we allow God to probe us, there will be questions. There will be difficult questions that come up. And it's okay to question Jesus. The problem with these people, when we're not the fact that they question Jesus, but the attitude with which they question Him. We today, as we engage with God seriously, life throws up a lot of difficult questions. The scriptures sometimes throw up a lot of difficult questions. It's how you ask that makes all the difference. Way back in the Old Testament, there's one particular man, a patriarch, Abraham, who's spoken of as the father of faith. This father of faith had some very difficult questions sometimes rise up. Read how, look at how he asked the father questions. And look at the attitude and see the difference between his questioning and the questioning of the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Herodians. We'll just have the next overhead. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust, and ashes, look at the humility in that questioning. What if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him, what if only forty are found there? He said, for the sake of forty, I will not do it. And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only thirty can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only twenty can be found there? He said, for the sake of twenty, I will not destroy. And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And then this it finishes in a very strange way. It says, when the Lord has finished speaking with Abraham, not when Abraham had finished speaking with God, but when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed. What a different way in which to ask questions of God. That says to me that sometimes when we come to God, when we ask questions, and he may come back to us with questions of his own. We can rise from even those kinds of encounters with God. The questions still unanswered. But with new authority. A new humility. A new grasp of scripture. A new faith. And you ask me, how come you can have more faith after you've had your questions not answered than before? That's the miracle of an encounter with God. And you rise from there. And you go, this is the amazing Savior that we have. And so we want to take the rest, that's why the sermon was put early today, so that the rest of the service we can take some time without hurry to focus upon Jesus, our wonderful Savior, to worship Him so that we may at least be tinged a little bit with the amazement that seemed to characterize the people who saw Him face to face that day in the temple. You know, as we were singing that song, you know, if... Uh, if uh, like um, water for your feet, like uh, wine for you to drink, if praise is like perfume. I know we were expressing our love for Jesus, but it really struck me that really that's how he loves us too. You know? Because he did that for us. And Lent is a celebration. So that's my blessing for you. May, may you know in this week to come in the circumstances of your life, 
Jesus pouring himself out for you. May he be like water for your feet to wash defilement from your life. May he be like wine for you to drink to gladden your heart. And if praise is like perfume, may you know his affirmation of you and may you know his delight in you. Go in Jesus' name.